This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, we hear from Jana Levin. Levin is a writer, astrophysicist, and professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College. She was previously the first scientist-in-residence at the Ruskin School of Fine Art and Drawing at Oxford, and has worked at Cambridge University and the Center for Particle Astrophysics at UC Berkeley. In this Aspen lecture, Levin offers an epic tour through time, from the first moments after the Big Bang to the emergence of life on at least one little planet spinning in an inconceivably infinite cosmic ocean, to black holes, and even the possible end of time. Levin's presentation includes several visuals, but we find her talk and ideas so compelling that we think you'll enjoy it here on the podcast. You can watch the video of her presentation on our website, aspenideas.org. Here's Jana Levin. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, actually, this talk is really going to be a talk about questions uh, in some sense. I want to talk about little questions and how they lead us inadvertently to huge questions and how we sometimes have to come back again. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about one of the first questions I remember asking, which is, what else is out there? I don't know what it was like where you were, but I lived in cities most of my life, and I would look out my childhood window at the little patch of the sky, and I couldn't see much. You know, I couldn't, this certainly wasn't my view out my window. This is from the European Southern Observatory, um, and it's from their telescopes. It's actually not taken by a telescope. It's just taken on the ground, but um, where they have a lot of telescopes in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Um, but out my window, you know, all I could see were some little spots, little stars. And I just remember uh, wondering what they were and what else was out there. And I remember having this feeling almost of restlessness, of wanting to be connected uh, with just that big sky, you know, almost wanting to be let in. But I, I really never considered uh, being a scientist at that age. And I think if somebody had told me I'd be a physicist, I would have been offended. Um, I thought physicists memorized equations and just had an accumulation of facts. And that seemed totally antithetical to being a creative or inspired person. I had a very negative opinion of physics in particular, which is very funny. So sort of as my punishment, you know, um, I became a physicist. And I remember it was years before I started to understand that it's really quite the opposite. Scientists are excellent at asking questions, and they love not to know stuff, and that's just the best phase, to not know something, to hone in on the question, and to try to find an ingenious solution. And I, and I talk about it as really like creativity crashing into truth. You know, this kind of constraint of reality and constraint of truth. You know, physicists or scientists in general will often say as a great compliment, um, that's a great question. It's a huge compliment to give to another scientist. So, um, so I wanted to give a talk about questions. Um, and to start with, I want to start with a simple one. You know, simple question any human being on the planet could ask when they look up at the night sky, whether or not their view is this great. But it's just the simple question, what is that? Does anyone know what that is? What is that? It's our galaxy. I didn't give you a chance to answer. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm the one who knows. It's our galaxy. That's the amazing thing. It's not obvious if you were to look up at the sky what that is. That is a collection of 100 billion stars. Our sun being one very ordinary star. I'm sure many of you have heard this story before. It turns out we live in a little family of 100 billion stars. Um, if you were able to get some distance from the Milky Way, it would look like this. Uh, that's a very good representation of the Milky Way. It's about 100,000 light years across, a few thousand uh, light years thick, and we're very much inside this galaxy. We can't get that bird's eye view. Um, if you look at our, er our earliest probes, like the Voyager spacecraft that were launched in the 70s, they've just barely gotten out of our solar system. They're about 16 light hours out. I think that's the right number. Uh, and we're nowhere near sending spacecraft hundreds of, of thousands of light years out. To send a spacecraft traveling at the speed of light um, to get that view we had a second ago would take you know, maybe a million years. <laughs> Um, and so, so we're nowhere near being able to have that view, but that's not a cartoon either. That's really constructed from astronomical maps and cleverly reconstructed to give us a three-dimensional image. So it's not a cartoon. But there we are with that big, beautiful scar above us, and we're forever really locked beneath it. And we live inside the galaxy, and that's why it looks like that ridge, because we're looking at it edge on. So once you ask this very simple question, what is that? You discover it's got 100 billion stars. The next natural question is, well, are there other galaxies out there? This was not a question Einstein knew the answer to. People talked about it, you know, since Kant. People were saying, there are these little smudges. They look like they're not stars. Are they other island universes and what are they? It wasn't really until Edwin Hubble, um, uh, working in the uh, Mount Wilson Observatory in California um, in the 1920s, began to make these extraordinary plates where, I don't know if you can make out the image that well, but that is indeed a whole other galaxy. And he started to answer this question. 1923, this plate is marked, and Einstein's huge uh, burst of creativity was in 1905 when he started thinking about space and time and his real um, crowning achievement when he really understood gravity and space time was in uh, 1915, 1916. So this is 1923 is the first time that they had completely definitive conclusive evidence that there were other galaxies out there. This is Andromeda. It's pretty nearby. It's a few million light years away and it's much bigger than we are. Okay, so we're, we're kind of puny compared to Andromeda. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, after, named after this astronomer, Edwin Hubble, sees extraordinary images of galaxies just all the time, and I'm sure you've seen many of these. This is Andromeda through the satellite, through the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and we see galaxies all the time. Uh, they're extraordinary. We see them a few, a few hundred million light years away. We see them a billion light years away. Um, this is called the Whirlpool Galaxy. It's got a little companion in its arm. Um, they, we see galaxies colliding. They're extraordinary. And then we see this. Okay. This is a stunning image. This is called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Uh, if you were to look at the moon and you were to take a tiny patch, about a tenth of the moon, this square fits inside that tiny patch. And in this square, the Hubble uh, Space Telescope found its deepest images of the furthest galaxies. There are about 10,000 galaxies in this little tiny patch of sky. So if you were to reconstruct the whole sky by extrapolation, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in our observable universe that we can see from Earth. And that means there are as many galaxies that we can see 
as there are stars in our own galaxy. Now, I mean, this is very bedazzling, right? This is an extraordinary universe to be in. You know, yesterday I said, we need a little perspective on our insignificance. I think this sort of helps, right? <laughs> Hundreds of billions of galaxies, that means uh, an untold number of stars, and around them, many, many planets. We know there are many planets now, even in our own galaxy, right around us, we know that there are other solar systems. Um, so, so this creates this whole field, this simple question, what is that? It's a galaxy. Are there others? Yes, there are others. <laughs> and they're vast, and they, they surround us. But, um, so this leads to a whole area of cosmology, but Hubble did something very extraordinary um, in addition to this, which answering these simple questions, which is that he made this discovery when he was looking at these galaxies. He realized that... Uh, yes, not only are the other galaxies, but they're moving away from us, oddly. And the picture he reconstructed was that, on average, when you look at all of these galaxies, they're all moving away from each other. Okay? He said it's not like an explosion happening in space. It's more like the space is stretching between the galaxies. Okay? So at any point in the universe, if you were to look out, it would look like the galaxies were expanding away from you. This was actually suggested before Hubble made this observation. It's the observation, definitive observation, that the universe is expanding. Okay. Nobody asked that question. Nobody said, hey, is the universe expanding? Um, no, it was not on people's radar. But right after Einstein was working on his great theory of space-time and the universe, some other scientists came along and they asked this simple question. What would gravity, what would space-time look like if it was full of stuff? It was just full of stuff everywhere, like we see in this picture. And what they concluded mathematically, to their surprise, was that Einstein's theory predicted that the universe was expanding. They predicted this many years before Hubble. And Einstein thought this is um, absurd. He rejects this idea totally. He doesn't want to believe it. And it, this story is told over and over again because people are so excited that Einstein was wrong, you know? Um, I mean, Einstein said about himself, you know, when I was a student, I was no Einstein. Um, so, you know, he didn't mind being wrong. He was a strange, I mean, he was a very confident person. I mean, we should ask Walter Isaacson, <laughs> probably knows more than I do about Einstein. But, um, but he really didn't, he wasn't ashamed to be risky and to make mistakes and to be wrong, but he really did not believe uh, that the universe was expanding. And the reason why, or one of the reasons why, is because if you just logically run that movie backwards, the universe is expanding today. It means in the past, everything must have been closer together. And these, everyone knew this from extrapolation, that if it was all closer together, there must have been a time when galaxies were too close to be galaxies. They were too close to be stars. They were so close together, smashed in so extremely that they would just be like a hot primordial soup of the highest energy stuff. And this is what earned the name Big Bang. Okay? It was coined, the, the, the term Big Bang was coined uh, as, as in, in derision. What a stupid idea. What did they think? There was a Big Bang. So the name stuck. And that's what they said. They said, you know, if we extrapolate backwards, there must have been a moment when the universe began, when there weren't galaxies and there weren't stars. And there certainly weren't people, right, to ask these questions. And I think that was the hitch, uh, the idea that the universe wasn't permanent, the, the idea that the universe had a beginning. Now we see tremendous evidence um, that this is indeed the case. The universe is about 14 billion years old. And we see the light left over from the Big Bang in this extraordinary picture where the Big Bang happened everywhere. 
Every point of the universe was once at the center of the Big Bang. Every point of the universe is enduring the expansion still from that Big Bang. In 1920s, uh, after Hubble did his work, Einstein capitulates. He realizes it was this tremendous blunder. He could have predicted uh, the expansion of the universe, and he didn't. But he, had, he, he comes to accept it um, as a scientific fact. So these simple questions, uh, what happens if the universe is full of stuff, leads to this absolutely extraordinary discovery, which now leads to some kind of frightening questions, um, like what happened before the Big Bang? You have to ask this question, don't you? I mean, if you really think the universe had a beginning, you have to start to wonder things like, what happened before? I'm often asked, how long was it before the Big Bang? I have this nice clock from an artist friend. You know, there's really, we often dismiss that question and say, look, that's meaningless. Before the Big Bang, there wasn't time. Because what is time? Time is the passage of change. If I'm floating in empty space, how do I know that, that time is passing? I accumulate thoughts, I have memories, maybe I age, I mark change. In the absence that the universe is crushed down to the point where actually it ceases in some sense to exist, we can't even talk about clocks to measure change, to measure the passage of time. But what it does is it emphasizes that we actually don't really even understand what time is. <laughs> we start to think, well, I don't really know. What is time? Time is the measure of change, but does that mean time itself began with the Big Bang? Clock started ticking. If we start to think about time as being created in the Big Bang, we have to ask questions like, why does it always move forward? Is it a dimension, the way Einstein talked about? If I can go from the East Coast to the West Coast in space, why can't I go forwards and backwards in time? You know, why can't I turn around and go back to the Big Bang? Is time something that always exists? Like, is the Big Bang still there in our past and we just can't access it? We're marching ever forward and we don't know why. So these questions sound like we're a bit adrift, but these are fundamental questions now in physics. What is the nature of time? Why does time always move forward? What is the arrow of time? Is, is time something that exists only momentarily or is it there behind us and in our future, like space? I can't answer those questions. <laughs> I have a feeling some of you are going to tell me your theories over cocktails tonight. <laughs> um, but there, we're, we're, okay, so let's, let's take a step back. Let's say, okay, we're, we're adrift. We're lost. We're asking questions that are too hard to answer. Let's go back into the universe. There was a Big Bang. There was a moment when the universe was created. This much we know. We have scientific evidence for it. Uh, uh, so now we ask, oh, was it the only time it ever happened? Um, has the Big Bang ever happened before? Will it happen again? Is there a Big Bang in our future? Have there been some in our past? Have other parts of the universe, in some sense, had their own Big Bangs? Are there other Big Bangs out there? This idea of a multiverse is something that's taken seriously. I don't know if it's right or wrong. I don't think people know if it's right or wrong. But there is seriously on the table uh, an attempt to ask the question, are there other universes out there, some which are slightly different from ours, maybe each time a Big Bang happens, the laws of physics are slightly different. Maybe in some of those universes, galaxies form. Maybe in some, they don't. Maybe in some of those universes, life emerges on planets. Maybe in others, they don't. The laws of physics aren't tuned right. Uh, maybe there's an infinite number of these possibilities. And um, I don't, I'm not going to say more about that, except to say that it is natural to start to ask these questions. And uh, they may be questions that actually have scientific answers. Now, they may not, but they may be. Okay? They may not, but they may be. There's another really interesting question that we can ask when we start to um, look at the Big Bang, and that is, is it infinite? Is our universe infinite? 
If something that is created at a specific moment in time, 14 billion years ago, comes into existence, space itself explodes out of the Big Bang, is it infinite? Are those galaxies that we see in the sky, do they go on forever? If we could look for long enough, uh, would it never end? Um, Einstein also said, uh, only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. <laughs> and then he said, and I'm not so sure about the universe. Um, once you start to talk about space and time in this way, you, you have to start to wonder uh, if maybe the universe isn't infinite. If it is infinite, it means, or it might mean, that somewhere else in the universe there's a galaxy so similar to ours because every infinite possibility is realized. And in that galaxy there's probably a planet that looks very much like ours. And so somewhere else in the universe there's an Aspen Ideas Festival, you know, going on and they're talking about us on the edge of the horizon, wondering if we exist, right? And that possibility could be realized an infinite number of times, so maybe it's slightly different every time. Okay, so it starts to get a little um, seeming uh, like maybe that's not the most natural solution. So what's the alternative? It, the universe might be infinite, seriously, I don't know. But here's the alternative. The alternative is that it's not infinite. <laughs> it's finite. So imagine another finite world, the Earth. So before explorers um, uh, had mapped out the Earth, everybody knew sort of their local region, but not the globe. Um, it, people didn't know the Earth was a sphere, right? You would have thought, uh, uh, remember the, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but uh, explorers sailing off the European coast and people fearing they were going to fall off the edge, right? And we know that there's no edge. What happens if you leave the European coast and you travel in a straight line as you possibly can? Is you come back to where you started eventually. Okay, you leave Spain behind you and you travel in a straight line and you go around the globe and you find yourself coming right back where you started. That's the image we have for the possibility of a finite universe. Uh, this is a computer code, a game written by a great mathematician, Jeff Weeks, a good friend, um, where he uh, constructs what the world would look like if you did that journey uh, in a finite universe, you left your galaxy, your beautiful spiral galaxy behind you, and you began to travel out into the universe, and you travel in a straight line, and you go for billions of light years, and you never turn left and you never turn right, just like those explorers, you're traveling in a straight line as you possibly can. In a finite universe, if the entire universe is finite, you would be surprised when you saw a distant galaxy approaching you to realize that in fact that was the same galaxy you left behind. Just like if you came back to the shore of Spain, you would have to realize that was the, the same continent you left behind. So in this um, image of a finite universe, in this particular universe that Jeff Weeks created, there's only one galaxy in the entire universe. All those other galaxies you see are really just copies. They're just, they're just images of the, single universe, of the single galaxy in the entire universe. Now we know our universe isn't that small. Um, we know our universe is big enough to accommodate lots of other galaxies, but it's still a realistic question. How big is the universe and what is the shape of space? Let's see. There's another uh, a very intriguing question that we get to um, at this stage, which is uh, if the universe can have a shape, if it could be finite, if it can have three dimensions, are there, is there a possibility for extra dimensions. You know, when we think about um, the shape of space, we think that there's an up and down, 
one dimension, a front and back, a second dimension, a left and right, a third dimension. And with that information, you can totally locate somebody in space. But there is the possibility that uh, it's taken seriously more and more that there are extra spatial directions. I can't point to it <laughs> very easily, but mathematically we can think about it. In this uh, idea of there being extra spatial dimensions, let's imagine we just look at a slice of our universe, just a two-dimensional slice of our universe. That extra dimension would be uh, orthogonal to that slice and it would be everywhere. You guys are going, what is she talking about? <laughs> so if you are wondering, what is she talking about? I'm, I have done my job. There used to be a saying um, at MIT, and I'm sorry, I can't remember um, the attribution, but it said every talk about physics should have something for everyone can understand out of respect for the audience, um, something only a few people can understand out of respect for the experts, and something nobody can, under can understand out of respect for physics. So, um, so this is that part. So there, this idea that the universe had extraspatial dimensions was brought up, again, very uh, soon after Einstein started to think about his ideas. People started to realize the universe was expanding. They started to talk about all of these things. And then it kind of stalled. And they said, no, that's crazy. We don't talk about it. Now, um, in modern theories of physics, there are definitely a place for con considering, contemplating the possibility that there are extraspatial dimensions. And it's, it's something um, that... Uh, we, we may or may not be able to um, get closer to. One of those scary questions where you wonder if you've gone too far, too far adrift. Um, somebody asked me the other day, well, what does it really look like when you're, when you're working on these things? I just want to tell you that we don't just throw around these crazy words and, um, and these ideas and, and, and have these sort of stories. We sit down and we really try to do the math. This is from a Blackboard uh, talking to um, Brian Green, who I know has spoken at the Aspen Ideas Festival before. And he and I uh, asked the question, well, are there extra spatial dimensions, as many other people have, and, and what would the implications be for the universe? So, so what we really do is really math at the end of the day. And we can disprove a lot of our ideas. Um, on the blackboard or on pen and paper without even having to look at the universe. We can kill it by inconsistency. We can kill it by mathematics. But if it starts to survive, then we try to think of ways to look out into space to see confirmation. And, um, and we're not close to doing that yet. <laughs> but I'll tell you why we think it's still interesting to contemplate. OK, so maybe we've just gotten lost. Let's bring ourselves back. We asked these questions. Uh, what is that? It's a galaxy. Are there others? Yes, the sky is full of them. And then we were driven to these very surprising uh, discoveries. The universe is expanding. It had a Big Bang, and that led us to question the nature of time, whether the Big Bang had happened before, if there is a multiverse, if the universe is finite, if there are extra dimensions. Okay, we can't answer all those questions, but we can come back into the universe that we do live in, that we do understand. And, uh, and I want to show you this map of the universe. This is, again, not a cartoon. This is from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. It's a construction of what we actually see out there. All of those are galaxies that we see. And the galaxies are plentiful, and they pile up on these structures. And, um, and so we look at this, and we can wonder, is that universe infinite? Would it go on forever? Are maybe some of those distant galaxies copies? Like, if we traveled in this space to one of those distant galaxies, would we realize, oh, we've come back to the Milky Way? We've traveled around space and come back to where we started. OK, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But there is something very extraordinary that we do know 
about this universe that we see in data, that we know to be true, and that is, that's not everything. We're certain of that. That is not everything. When we look at galaxies, we have this surprising result that they're much heavier than they appear to be. We see the light coming from them, but we can tell by the effect that they have on things around them that they're actually much, much heavier than they look. Uh, it would be like if you were looking at me at here and it turned out you know, that I crushed the stage and I weighed four tons. You, know, you would suspect there's other matter there. Right? There's other mass. And that's what we call it. We call it dark matter. Dark matter is this proxy that just means there's matter out there and we don't know what it is, but we know it's unlike anything we've ever seen before. It is not the matter that is in our bodies, that is in the chairs, that's in the stars that we see. It's a different kind of matter. So that is a very dramatic discovery, that the universe is full of dark matter. Then there was another very dramatic discovery, which is that not only is the universe expanding today, but the expansion's getting faster and faster. And we have no idea what's doing that. It's a significant amount of energy driving the universe to expand faster and faster. And we've given that a proxy name, which is dark energy. We don't know what it is. We don't know where it comes from. We've never seen anything like it in our laboratories. So what we do know is that dark matter and dark energy, which are the most significant components making up the energy density of the universe, we're less than 5%. We're a little bit of ash. Everything we see, all that stuff I showed you, not just us, all that stuff I showed you is less than 5% of the energy density of the universe. It's like this little residue. And the rest of it is stuff we don't know what it is. It's very likely that the answer to the question, what is that, right? What is the dark energy and the dark matter? Lies in the very early universe. Very probably, the dark matter is created probably earlier than the first trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And we, we can't make it in our laboratories yet. We're trying. And the dark energy very well may have been formed again in that very early moment after the Big Bang. And understanding it, understanding something that's right there that's affecting the universe that we actually live in might require that we ask and answer questions like, what is time? Are there other universes? Has the Big Bang happened before? Is the universe finite? Are there extra dimensions? That blackboard I showed you, uh, Brian and I were asking the simple question, you know, if there are extra spatial dimensions, uh, why can't I see them, you know? And, and the idea would be that those dimensions are also finite, that they're so small that we come back to where we started immediately. If I make any motion in that extra direction, I'm right back to where I started. I can't even, in some sense, I have no thickness in that direction. And we asked, could little dimensions like that trap energy? Could little dimensions like that be trapping the dark energy? Could the dark energy be our first evidence of the existence of extra finite dimensions? Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we did pretty well. We did pretty well. We got pretty far, but there are things that aren't quite right. We don't understand. The math is hard. You know, Brian's a brilliant mathematician and a great physicist, and we get stuck. We get stuck. So, um, but these are real questions that might actually be connected with our universe. So just to come back to um, where we started, um, you know, here we are under the Milky Way, and we've discovered all of that, really, more or less, from our backyard. All of that we've discovered from our backyard, and that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, scientists 
most scientists do not work on these really crazy questions. And a lot of times, I also don't work on these crazy questions. Sometimes I just work on really concrete, practical, in-your-face things like black holes. <laughs> and at least we know black holes exist. So that's me being concrete. They they're there a billion years ago. They collided. That's you know, recent history for me. And, um, and so most of the time, we do work on things that are more connected with the world we see. But we can't help but drift into these other questions. And this is the greatest time to be alive. I think you hear scientists say that stuff all the time. It's the greatest time to be alive, because there are these great mysteries, the dark energy and the dark matter that are foisted on us. We know we don't know everything. We have really good questions to ask and to solve. Um, and, uh, and so you know, it's as though we're rewarded uh, with answering some simple questions, like what is that and what else is out there, with even greater and more challenging puzzles. Thank you. I, um, I want to leave plenty of time for questions. You spoke about uh, uh, the visible stuff and the tangible stuff being yeah. 4%. Is that growing, or do you expect to see that like dark energy and dark matter to sort of sublimate into stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. Can they change? You know, energy, we talk about conservation of energy, one kind of energy converting into another. Can dark matter energy turn in? Sometimes, okay, but um, the dark matter can't turn into the regular matter that we see. It has different properties. It doesn't interact with light, first of all. That's why it's dark. It does not interact with light, and, and it has very specific properties that uh, make it so that it doesn't, okay? And, um, and that's why it's dark out there, and that's not easy to convert. But, but, um, but having said that, when we go to our accelerator experiments, like you go to the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, where we found the Higgs particle, where they're smashing together um, ordinary matter, they do think they can create the dark matter from that interaction. So you create dark matter and a bunch of other stuff. So in that sense, yes, we can smash together regular particles, and if we smash them together hard enough, we might be able to create dark matter in the laboratory. So the big thing that people are hoping for now that the Higgs was discovered, and people might want to ask what, what that is, um, is will we see dark matter next? And that would be very exciting. So the conditions that they're reproducing in terms of the energy scale at the Large Hadron Collider are very, very high energy conditions that are the kinds of conditions we expected in the very, very early universe. And also for the dark energy, it could decay one day. It could decay into something else. We just don't know. What happened to the string theory that we heard about for so many years? Yeah, so string theory um, is the idea that when I look at the smallest level of matter, I'll find out that it's not little point particles, little billiard balls, but it's actually little loops of string and that all of us are made up of these little loops of string playing different harmonics. And so we're all kind of made up of one thing. There's one unifying idea. That was why string theory was so uh, amazing and exciting, was because it was this attempt to say there's one law of physics, only one. And it was all down to string theory, and we're all strings. And so it's a very exciting idea. And string theory requires extra spatial dimensions for its own mathematical consistency. And so uh, that's why extra dimensions have started to become very popular again in terms of people asking about cosmology. Because um, if string theory requires it to make sense, where are they? 
Where are those extra dimensions? So we started to imagine these small, finite dimensions. Um, so string theory is still out there. It's still, um, it's still uh, in progress. It's a very difficult theory, and it's not completely understood yet. And um, the architects of the theory don't completely understand it. And this is one of these things. Some, some scientists say, well, then string theory is wrong, and it should just go away, and we should start over and try something else. Um, and other people say, there's no uh, guarantee that we solve problems in a human lifetime. Remember it was 300 years between Newton and Einstein? You know, maybe it'll be 300 years <laughs> before you figure out string theory. So it's an active field is all I can tell you. And it's an important and active field and it's a really interesting and active field, but it's not solved. And those questions are not simple. <laughs> I can tell you. And the way the, the, the level of the questions have become very, very hard. And I think that bothers people. Okay. If the Big Bang brought on the inception of the universe or universes, which is all and everything, what went bang? Yeah, again, that's a really, um, I gave this, I sort of wanted to correct myself a little bit. I gave this very naive notion that when the universe contracted back to the origin, you know, back to the moment of creation, that before that there was nothing. That's kind of an old-fashioned story. I don't think people really talk like that anymore. They sort of imagine there was space and time, and a little bubble of it broke off and exploded in some sense. It began expanding extremely rapidly. So it was like a plume that came off of a larger landscape. And, um, and why did it do that? Okay, so that is more consistent with the multiverse. There's this landscape and little patches bubble off. Okay? And they bubble off and they create their own universes with their own big bangs and their own histories. Um, why do they bubble off? So you might have heard of this theory of inflation, uh, which was also in the press a lot because there's some excitement that it might have had a really strong confirmation of this theory. It says that a little patch of the universe gets trapped in a, in a high energy state, and it's a lot like the dark energy. Something drives it to expand incredibly rapidly. It's a lot like dark energy. And we think we understand how that might happen in terms of when we look at fundamental things and fundamental theories. So it inflates out because some high energy state gets trapped, it blows out, and then that dark energy, that part of our past decays and our universe sort of bursts out of it. Um, this idea of inflation has been around since the 80s and it is very interesting because it predicts certain marks in the light left over from the Big Bang, certain little archeological features. And that is what people in the past couple months announced that they believe that they have uh, discovered uh, as just very strong evidence for inflation. So we look at the light left over from the Big Bang. I just wanna say that that's really an amazing thing. What, what is the smallest element that's actually part of this expansion? After all, we're here and we don't expand. And yeah, that's right. So what is the smallest element? Okay, now you're forcing me to use Woody Allen quotes. So you remember this when he, um, he won't do his homework because he realizes the universe is expanding and he has like, an, is it Annie Hall? I can't remember. And his mom says, you live in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. It's none of your business. Yeah, it's none of your business. Um, we're not expanding. It's true. And that's because the expansion of the universe is not strong enough to rip apart uh, the the matter-to-matter -matter attractions in our body. It's also not strong enough to rip apart the Earth because that gravitational attraction is pretty strong between the Earth and its matter, and the solar system stays together, and the galaxy stays together. The Milky Way is not expanding. And in fact, we're not even moving away from Andromeda. We're falling into Andromeda. Okay. So we will collide with Andromeda in a few billion years. So all of that gravitational stuff is actually stronger than the general expansion. 
And it's only when you get to the sort of diffuse spaces between very distant galaxies that you see that that's stretching. Now that might change in the future. The universe expansion might get faster and faster and stronger and stronger, and we might have galaxies ripped apart and things like that might happen. Brooklyn might expand, okay? But that's very, very far in our future. <laughs> like, I wouldn't worry about it because the sun's gonna blow up long before that happens. <laughs> How do you think our understanding will change when the James Webb Telescope goes in 2018? How our understanding of the universe will change? Yeah. So um, the James Webb Telescope is a very ambitious project that's sort of the next generation like Hubble. Um, I think that one of uh, the things, I mean, there's obviously many, many things in astronomy and physics that I have gotten nowhere near. All the details about colliding black holes and how black holes are these massive engines that, um, that have these very energetic outbursts. All this, there's tons of things in the universe that, that can be seen by other telescopes. But also, in terms of the topics that we've touched on, it could have, um, it could have important implications for understanding exactly what's going on with this with this expansion, that is the universe really getting faster and faster in such a way that we can extract more information, more details about how that's happening? Can we understand how it's accelerating? You know, there's things that, it, that we could, we for sure could understand in, in terms of even this conversation. Um, and you know, I'm very theoretical. My work is totally mathematical all the time. We really, I, we really need those observers and people who, who, who build things and look at stuff so that we don't get lost in these other questions, but that we're constantly being anchored in some kind of reality, right? Because that is the real criticism is that, look, these aren't scientific questions anymore. You're getting lost. And so we have to keep stepping back and, and do what we can to, to actually look and see what's out there. Um. <laughs> um, uh, due to the nature of the Big Bang uh, yeah. coming from one, one point, does that mean that matter at the edge of the universe, if there is an edge, is, is accelerating faster away from the center? And if so, does that, does that have anything to do with um, the theory of like, the cosmic fabric ripping and coming back together? So I would say, um, I'm really glad you asked that question, because um, we have to think of the Big Bang as very different from that. So we look at a star exploding, and the star explodes at a point in space. We know where it happened. It happened over there. You know? And we see all the matter expand out, and it all kind of accumulates out here on the edge. Our, our image of the Big Bang is radically different from that. It says every part of space-time was once at the center of the explosion. The explosion did not happen at one point in space. The explosion was space bursting out and expanding. There was no single location to the Big Bang. I can't look out into space and point to where it is. The Big Bang happened here. It also happened 15 billion light years away because that point and this point were once together. So the Big Bang happened everywhere and the whole space is expanding and there is no edge. And it's a really challenging picture. Okay? It's a really challenging picture. <laughs> you guys got it though, I can tell. So one, one, one analogy that people use, which I'm not crazy about, but I'll say it here, is people say, imagine the universe is the skin of a balloon, and you've drawn little dots on the skin of the balloon, and those represent atoms or galaxies or something, and the balloon is stretching. The dots, the ink stains the skin of the balloon and doesn't move, but the skin between, the space between the dots stretches, and that's really what we're thinking of with the universe. The reason I don't like that analogy is because we all know it's expanding into something, and the universe isn't. The universe isn't expanding into something. The universe is everything. This goes to what mm -hmm. Walter Isaacson talks about, mm -hmm. is that genius is the intersection between art and science. And 
what I'm trying to follow in your conversation is you have a theory and you have the math or you have the discovery through the telescopes or through the Hubble or what have mm -hmm. you. It, it's not a chicken or egg which comes first, the math or, or the discovery, but could you kind of take us through one or two examples yeah. in the last few years? I would say most, uh, many people, there's a sort of story that's told uh, to young physicists growing up that all of the discoveries are really driven by observations first and the theory comes later. General relativity might be the, the idea of a curved space-time that Einstein came up with might be one of those examples that would, it's not the case. Okay. He was thinking purely theoretically, and, um, and his ideas were, were about imagination crashing into truth. That's what Einstein did really beautifully. There'd be some simple fact that was discovered like the constancy of the speed of light, and there's some argument about how um, how much Einstein cared about the experiments that were done, but he did accept that there was this fundamental limit to nature, the constancy of the speed of light. And nobody else wanted to believe this limit, right? So he accepted this hideous constraint, strange and surprising hideous constraint, and in it he just dreamt and imagined and had these thought experiments and thought through what the implications were, and it forced him to give up uh, space and time as we knew it and to understand relativity or relativism of space and time. So that's an example where, where the ideas are coming out of almost you know, consistent philosophical consistency. And then the math came, came later. He was not a great mathematician in a sense. You know, he struggled with the math. Um, so I can't say there's one way it's done. Okay. There's, we have, what's beautiful about scientific uh, collaboration is that it is a collaboration and that there are many different minds and many different ways of thinking and many different approaches. And, and so I don't make a very good experimentalist, but I'm, I like to do theory. And, 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 and so we collaborate and we work together and people build stuff and I admire it tremendously and that's how it works. To say which comes first is sometimes an accident of history, I think. That was kind of a rambling answer to your question, sorry. Yes. I, I want to thank you for an informative um, and well-constructed talk and, and say that uh, Alex Degrassi has nothing on you. Oh, thank uh, <laughs> I, I think you mean Neil. Uh, Neil, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I want to tell him you said that. Uh, you go right ahead. Um, He's a big guy. And yeah. I'm interested in um, reflecting on your big question from mm -hmm. yesterday, the mm -hmm. insignificance mm -hmm. that the information you're posing um, paints us in. Mm. And that means all of us, including you. And you're a social actor. Mm -hmm. And your whole life is not lived in, in the theoretical world. Mm -hmm. And what I want to know about is how the information you pursue in this realm informs you about your insignificance mm -hmm. as an actor mm -hmm. in that social world, where gravity, social gravity, is a compelling force mm -hmm. that in many ways isolates and balkanizes us mm -hmm. uh, in not very constructive ways. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that because of uh, my perspective on the universe, I have exactly no uh, relationship problems whatsoever, and never have. Um, I have no anxiety, and I worry about nothing. No, I mean, you know, unfortunately, um, it's harder to put into practice than I'd like it to be. But I do think it, I just think it helps in the global uh, uh, perspective to not squander what we have going on here. And um, it won't last forever, you know? And so, so I can't say that as a personal philosophy, um, 
I am totally, I'm not the Buddha, but, um, but I do think it helps. And I think globally, especially when we talk about different cultures and we talk about uh, uh, social issues, people being confined by, by stereotyping or any of these things, I think it really helps to step outside and to, you know, to look at us from the outside. Um, maybe I'll develop this into uh, an ology, and then we'll have a, we'll have a little uh, temple of some kind. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned the Large Hadron, Hadron Collider, you mm -hmm. mentioned black holes, and mm -hmm. back when they lit that thing up for the first time, yeah. there was a lawsuit yeah. about whether it could destroy the Earth, and everyone yeah. said, ah, what a bunch of crackpots. And, yeah. and uh, I thought maybe some informed commentary on, yeah. like, what is the largest particle accelerator that you would be comfortable to have someone build on planet Earth before um, there actually would be a risk yeah. that um, something highly untoward could happen and say we would become you know, a much different configuration of matter in the universe. Yeah, that we, well, so if there are extra spatial dimensions, we don't want them to start unraveling or something like that. You know, we don't want to start floating. We don't want to do something catastrophic. We, now we, it becomes big, and now we float off into a different direction or something. Um, the black hole uh, controversy was interesting because it wasn't that people said, well, there's no way we'll make black holes. That's not what they said. They said, OK, yeah, we might make little black holes. We might. It's very unlikely, but it's possible. They just said they won't destroy the Earth. And, um, and here's, the, <laughs> here's the argument. Trust me. Um, so no, the argument is that a black hole, this, this will be my next talk next time I come back to Aspen. I want to do a talk on what black holes really are. Black holes are kind of like fundamental gravitational particles. So if I smash things together hard enough, just like I can make dark matter, I make, make little black holes. And, um, and that was taken seriously, but we think that they evaporate nearly instantaneously because of Hawking radiation. Hawking became very famous because he realized that even though black holes emit no light and reflect no light, they actually, in this very subtle quantum process, can evaporate away. And, um, and the calculations were very convincing, but you, there's something better than that, which is that we know that there are particles that hit the Earth's atmosphere that are reaching the energy scales of the Large Hadron Collider, and they are not making little black holes that are destroying the Earth. So um, it would have happened already without our intervention. Okay? So um, I would be comfortable making black holes, little black holes, because they're very, they don't survive. Okay? They don't survive. They go, they're gone. It's the big ones you've got to worry about. <laughs> And there is a big one in our galaxy. There's a big one 26,000 light years away. There's a black hole, let me just say this for fun, that's 4 million times the mass of the sun. And we are in orbit around that black hole. And we are in a safe, distant orbit around that black hole. And there's probably millions of black holes in the galaxy. My name is Layla. Um, and I have a question about dark matter and dark mm -hmm. energy. It's mm -hmm. really fascinating. Um, I know a lot of physicists, they try to find, like, there's so many particles for different types of uh, phenomena. Mm -hmm. um, is there a particle for dark matter? And if so, I know you said it's like undetectable, but are physicists working on a way to possibly detect it? Yeah, definitely physicists are working on a way to detect dark matter. Definitely. It's a major campaign to try to build, to guess what the dark matter might be, to ask the question, what is that, to guess what it might be in the scheme of things that we do know. We, if you might have heard of neutrinos, um, you know, people wondered if, if there's a kind of a neutrino, which is a particle that does not scatter off of light. Um, is there a kind of heavy neutrino that could be responsible for the dark matter? People think about this very hard. They think about how to detect it. They build machines. We just haven't done it yet. It, it means we, we've honed in. It's not this, it's not that, it's not this. We're chasing it around the space of possibilities. It's literally, we're literally guessing at what it might be and chasing it. 
Um, I'm, I feel very confident we'll discover dark matter. Um, I just, you know, we don't know when exactly, obviously, but I feel very confident that we'll discover it, and I think uh, for sure it's going to tell us something about the early universe. That matter comes from the early universe. Okay? It comes from less than a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. We, we can't even make it now, you know, it's so hard to make. That's the only time it could have been made. Yes? Hi. Um, I want to know if uh, computer models are mm -hmm. uh, helping uh, do all of these mm -hmm. things, and and more generally, do you think discoveries are accelerating in this field? Mm -hmm. um, I think this field had a tremendous burst between you know, 1915 and now, 100 years, an unbelievable, unbelievable burst. If you look at the Hubble Deep Field image and you think of that um, from, from recent times compared to what Hubble saw, I mean, it, it accelerated very quickly. In some sense, we got cosmology nailed. Okay. It's only because we understand it so well that we were able to admit, oh, look, there's a lot of it that's missing from our picture. Right? So people will often say, oh, you know nothing because you don't know what the dark matter and dark energy is. It's really the opposite. We honed in so well on these other things so precisely that we could see this, this phenomenon. Um, so uh, computer models are crucial, absolutely. We do a lot of stuff uh, numerically because we're, we're, we're on this planet under that galaxy, you know? There's only so far we can go. Um, so, so computer modeling, modeling is like a new kind of experimentation in a way. Obviously, uh, when you see the many swirling galaxies, it's hard not to feel cosmically insignificant. <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, so many of the physical laws of our universe mm -hmm. are sort of perfectly set and tuned in such a way that uh, life could be possible, and, and then intelligent life. Mm -hmm. What is your theory as to why that is? Is that just a consequence of the multiverse, and we could only exist in the universe that's tuned the way mm -hmm. that we could exist? Yeah, so a lot of people, it's kind of an anthropic reasoning, and a lot of people like that reasoning, a lot of people really dislike it. Um, but the reasoning goes, look, if the Big Bang happened many, many times in the future, in the past, if it's, you know, we live in this ginger root where there are, um, tons of, of, uh, of universes created and the laws of physics are all slightly different. Eventually one of them is going to have all the right properties to be tuned for the emergence of life on at least one little planet and that's us. Right? And that's an anthropic argument. It says, uh, it says, why are we here? We're here because things were just right for, to, to allow us to exist. A lot of people don't like that reasoning at all and that's why people get angry that the multiverse isn't real scientific reasoning. It's, you know, it's hard to say what role that will play. I, I think what people want is they want to say, here's something that we see in the universe, it's an observation, and the multiverse explains that observation and it's the only thing that explain the, explains that observation. Um, and so people are working to make it uh, more predictive, okay? And until then, I think it's just a very interesting idea on the table that we have to take seriously. And, and you know, I don't know how soon it'll be before we can do better than that. One of my favorite uh, quotes from a physicist is Murray Gelman's quote, mm -hmm. um, imagine how hard uh, physics would be if particles could think. Uh -huh. uh, so do you ever um, ask that question? Could particles think and what would that mean? Mm -hmm. Um, I asked the question, um, are we thinking? <laughs> there, it sounds true, but it's actually true. You know, are we just biological machines and are we just playing out a certain code and is there any sense of, I mean, we, we, you know, I labor with that stuff. Um, I think it's pretty, they're pretty convincing arguments that yes, we are just crunching through, that we are just biological machines. Um, those are interesting enough particles to worry about thinking. Um, I don't really worry about the subatomic. I mean, there's complexity arguments that are pretty convincing that you need a system complex enough to, to even contemplate the emergence of, 
um, consciousness and, and whether or not that consciousness is sort of a figment of our imagination or some real thing is, is, is really becomes the realm of neuroscience. But um, computer scientists and therefore physicists and mathematicians do think about this. This dates back to Alan Turing, really, who discovered just the idea that, that you could write a code to think and write a code to do mathematical operations. And then he starts going, well, maybe that's all we're doing. <laughs> you know. Um, so he is the inventor of the computer. Can you briefly talk about um, Kurt Gödel's contributions to cosmology, specifically yeah. his 1949 paper uh, when he was friends with Einstein in his twilight yeah. years, yeah. and talked about the current state of cosmology and the chronology projection conjecture? Um, the, so, so lots of interesting stuff there. Kurt Gödel was the greatest logician maybe of all time. He did something very extraordinary, um, which is he realized that there were some mathematical truths that could never be proven to be true. This was very shattering for mathematicians. He proved there are facts, even among numbers, that we could never prove to be true or false. It's totally extraordinary. And he was just this incredibly original, very odd character. He was basically a paranoid schizophrenic, I think. <laughs> But he was good friends with Einstein, and he was utterly brilliant. He would walk to the Institute in Princeton um, with Einstein every day, where they both worked after they uh, emigrated to the United States. And, and Gödel had this idea. You know, he realized in Einstein's theory that he could build a space where it was rotating, this crazy universe, not the one we live in, but an imaginary universe that where he mathematically worked out you could go backwards in time. You could go on what are called closed time-like curves. You could, you could travel in one direction and find that you came back into your past. Okay. And, um, and most, and then this, what you brought up, the chronology protection conjecture, is the idea that no, that will never actually happen in any real universe and will be protected from that. But, but nobody, it's just a conjecture. Nobody can prove that you couldn't make a universe that does that where you could go on closed time-like curves and go back in time. So when I said, oh, this maybe we've gone adrift to thinking about the nature of time and maybe these aren't questions we should be asking, we really do ask those questions about actual universes and space-times. Can we follow a path and go back in time and how would we do it? And, and there are, you know, that there are, there's lots of progress on that, but we've never um, been able to conceive of a way to do that in our universe with finite amounts of energy and things like that. So people think maybe you just won't be able to do it when you actually look at the laws of physics, but they can't prove it. That was Jan 11 recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 28, 2014. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that both shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and at Facebook slash Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>